welcome to episode 221 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lisa, Marilyn, Eric, Anna, and Lucy. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Lisa, Marilyn, Eric, Anna, and Lucy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Because both my work life and my personal life are quite full for the next couple weeks, I am giving you an open talk by Fran G. today. Good morning, everybody. My name is Fran, and I am a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. Um, I'm very nervous, um, but I'm all right with that. I believe that's God shaking the truth out of me. Um, as I listen to uh, the preliminaries to this meeting, I'm, I'm always struck by various words uh, in our welcome that the family situation is bound to improve. You know, uh, by the fact that there is but you know one authority. And much to my great surprise, after I came into this program, it wasn't me. Um, and that in the concepts that the participation is the key to harmony. Um, thinking about what I wanted to tell you this morning, my my journey in Al-Anon, all right, um, I always think about a song, that uh, sort of a classic that Simon and Garfunkel did, and there's uh, a few lines in there that says something about, you know, when darkness is all around and pain comes, a bridge over troubled waters. And Al-Anon has been my bridge over troubled waters. Yeah. I used to think when I first came into the program, and, I, and I've shared this before, that um, alcoholism touched my life uh, the first time when I saw the disease in my husband. But the longer I was in the program and had the opportunity to to listen to people and to do some outside reading, I I could see other places in my life. And um, some of those I'd like to share with you because it explains some of the confusion that I felt when I was looking at what was happening in my husband's life. Um, I had a father who was a very kind and gentle man. Um, I felt safe with my dad. I felt really safe with my father. Um, I can remember him taking me for walks when I was a small child, and he was a very tall man. And, and you know how little kids kind of had their hand up like this, and I would be, my hand would be up in the air, you know, to hold my father's hand. And uh, there used to be this building near where we lived that had very deep windowsills deep enough that a small child could get inside and hide. And we played this game. And I would slip away from my father and I would go hide in one of those windowsills. And he would come. And he would always look real surprised and really happy and he'd say, oh, I found you. And, he, and he'd reach in and he'd take my hands and, and I'd come out. And it felt good and it felt secure. 
And when I met and fell in love with the man that I married, I looked for that same kind of security. I thought, this is somebody that's going to hold my hand for the rest of my life, who's always going to be there for me. And we're going to live the life that I had always dreamed about and read about in romantic novels as a teenager. And for a while, that was very true. There was a lot of love. Alcoholism entered our family. I realized that when my husband drank, he became a different person. And at first, it was just maybe a couple times a year, parties, weddings, what have you, and I could kind of overlook it. But it became more frequent. I didn't realize that alcoholism was a progressive disease. And as his disease progressed, you know, his personality changed. And he not only became a stranger to me, he became a man that I was afraid of. And I lost that sense of somebody holding my hand and making it all right for me. And I was very lonely, as lonely as I have ever been in my entire life, you know, and very afraid. Symptomatic with his disease of alcoholism was violence. And like the AA speaker spoke last night, he didn't know what was going to happen when he drank. I did not know what was going to happen when my husband drank. But I didn't tell anybody about it. I closed the windows and I pulled the blinds and I just pretended that nobody knew what was going on inside of our house. I had a real strong reminder of that about two weeks ago. On Sunday night, I drive through a really pretty section of Wilmington on my way to an 11-step Al-Anon meeting. And I always drive up a little early because I really like to look at these houses and the trees and the gardens in that area. And as I was driving this one Sunday night, I looked, and right smack in the middle of one of these yards in front of these really pretty homes was a car parked at kind of an odd angle. And all of a sudden, I had this flashback to when our car was parked in our front yard because my husband hadn't made the driveway. And sometimes it was just parked there. Sometimes it had noticeable things like broken headlights and dented fenders. And neighbors would say to me, what happened to the car? And I would say, what do you mean what happened? Denial, I think they call that. I read a story once about a man who every time he got angry or felt a resentment, he would pick up a rock. And he started this collection of rocks. And over the years, it got kind of known that he had them. And there was a college near where he lived, and a a geology professor called him up and said, I understand you have quite a collection of rocks. I'd like to come and take a look. And the man said, sure, come on over. And the professor arrived, and he looked around at a pretty good-sized collection. And he said, you know, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I don't quite understand why you collected these, because they're really just 
ordinary, everyday rocks that you see every day. And that story really spoke to me because I did that too. I collected rocks of of anger and, and frustration and resentment. But I didn't leave mine scattered around. I built a wall. And you know, the thing about a wall is, yes, I kept my husband out and I kept other people out. You know, I I kind of protected myself, but I shut myself in behind that wall. And by the grace of God and the fellowship of Al-Anon and 12 Steps, I don't have a wall today, you know. I am absolutely convinced in my heart that if it was not for the program, I would be still isolated, still behind the wall, still afraid, and still angry. And that has not happened. But along the way, before that process took place, a number of things happened in our family. And you all know the nature of the disease of alcoholism, that it is progressive. And people do things that they would not do otherwise. And I used to kind of try and be tactful about this and say outside agencies got involved in our lives. It was the police. It was family court. You know, it was counselors. A lot of people realized something real sick was happening in my family and behind those closed windows and those drawn blinds. And we ended up in family court, and my husband was court-ordered to a treatment program. And so long before I ever set foot in an Al-Anon room, I was in an open AA meeting because they held AA meetings at that treatment center. They had no Al-Anon meetings. They had no family program. There was nothing there for me. But I sat and listened in AA. And I was extremely touched. I know now that what was happening was people from AA, men and women, were doing service. They came and shared their experience, strength, and hope with the people who were in that treatment center. And I watched their faces, and I saw something there that I knew certainly was not in my husband's face, and I knew it wasn't in mine. I saw that they cared about themselves. I saw that they cared about each other, and I saw they cared about these sick, suffering people who were there. And I listened, and I heard things that helped. My husband did not hear, and he was not open to the grace of God, to those words from those people. And I would leave that building, and I would sit in my car, and I would cry, and I would think, my God, there is help here for him, and he doesn't want it. But those words make sense to me. People can change. People can do things differently in their life because it's been that bad doesn't mean it has to stay that way 
And I was so frustrated. There was nobody there that I could talk to about that. And I was still behind that wall. So, of course, and I've shared this before, too, if you met me during all of that, all those ins and outs with the court, all the flashing lights in front of my house at 3 a.m. in the morning, and had said to me, you know, how are you doing? I would have said, just fine. I'm just fine. Yeah. And chances are I would have asked you how you were doing, and if you'd had a problem, I would have told you how to fix it. You know. But God, don't talk about mine. Don't look at my problem. And one of those days, sitting in family court on a bench, a man who I now know was a recovering alcoholic came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said that he thought Al-Anon might help me. And I didn't even know what Al-Anon was. By that time, of course, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he knew where I lived, and he told me where there was a meeting that I could go to. And it was on a Thursday night in Newcastle, Delaware, and it is still my home group, and I still go. And I remember that first night, like a lot of our meetings, have you noticed we go down steps to get to them? It was in the basement. And the door was closed, and when I opened the door, I, I can still remember how surprised I was I mean, he had told me I was going to a meeting. He had told me that there would be people there who would understand. But I didn't really expect to see people. I thought I was the only person who was living that kind of life. And so here was this room full of people, and they welcomed me, and they smiled at me. I am still tremendously touched when a newcomer comes down. I know that pain. And I hope and pray that they stay because I know it can change. And that night they gave me a little pamphlet. It was the first piece of Al-Anon literature I ever got. And it was called Just for Today. It is still my very favorite piece of Al-Anon literature. I'm sure that night, because it's a very traditional meeting, that they, that they talked about the steps. I'm sure that they did a number of the things that are always done in Al-Anon. But the main thing that I remember was that pamphlet, that people smiled at me, and that they told me it was a disease and that I did not cause it. They also told me that I could not cure it or control it. Those second two parts took me a lot longer to come to grips with. But I, I did feel relief at knowing that I was not responsible for my husband's disease. It's important that I tell you that I was not someone who came into Al-Anon and adopted the program instantly and, and changes happened immediately for me. Yes, there were some gradual changes, but I was somebody who had to go out and do a bit more research in that cure and control aspect of the disease. And so it really took me three shots in Al-Anon. And so when I see people come in our meetings and stay for a while and then leave, and people will say, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. They were regular here for a while. I always have hope that they'll come back. Because I came back. 
you know, I came back. And some of the same people were still in that room, and, and they always said, welcome back. You know, and I remember that, too. Driving down here for this, and, and really enjoying how, how beautiful the countryside is around here, I thought about driving that I did in the early days, some before I came into Al-Anon and some even afterwards. Um, my husband did most of his drinking at home. You know, you know like, I think Charlie Pride is it that has that song about behind closed doors. What was going on in Charlie Pride's song was not what was going on in my family. You know. And um, I kept my car keys under the front seat of my car because I knew that if things got a little tough, I could always get out and I could always take a ride. And I did that a lot. I, I would drive for hours just around the area that I lived in. But I remember one time, and at that point I was living outside of Newcastle, Delaware, realizing that I was in Baltimore. Now, think about that. I came down 95. I mean, I had to stop and pay toll several times. And I had no recollection of how I had gotten to Baltimore. None at all. You know, I... I believe that that uh, could be classified as being emotionally drunk. You know, I was just as incapable and just as irresponsible behind the wheel of that car as if I'd had a drug in me. You know. One of those nights when I went out for a ride, I did not want to come back home again. It was past the point of hurting. It was past the point of being angry about what was happening. I was extremely tired. That's the biggest thing I can tell you about how I felt. I was just extremely tired. And I didn't really believe that I could continue anymore. And I made the decision that I would drive to the Delaware Memorial Bridge and I would take my life. Now, on the way to the bridge, and, and this was in the early hours of the morning, and of course when I left the house in these conditions, it was not like I got all dressed up to go. It was kind of a real fast get-out-while-you-can sort of thing. So I was wearing my nightgown. And I was almost to the bridge when I realized that I had no money and so I couldn't pay to get on the bridge to jump off of it. <laughs> and I can, you know, I can laugh about that now, but then that was just like one more thing that was wrong in my life. And I thought, my God, I can't even kill myself correctly, you know. I don't plan that right either, you know. And I've shared this before, but each time I think about that and remember that that's who I used to be. I used to be that tired, lonely, scared person who didn't want to live anymore. I used to say I didn't know what happened that night. I believe that it was the grace of God. I think if I had been meant to go across that bridge, I'd have probably run the toll gates. But I think God had other plans for me. 
and recovery in Al-Anon, I believe, was part of that plan. On that third time into Al-Anon, I was at a point of complete surrender. I knew I could not control or cure my husband's illness. I knew that if I was going to have any kind of a life for myself or my children, I needed to do something. And that something was follow directions. You know, the first good orderly direction I ever heard was that one we say to newcomers, keep coming back. You know, keep coming back. I got a sponsor. And I used her. God love her did I use her, you know. Sometimes when I would call her, I couldn't even talk. I would be crying so hard. And she would just say, Fran, is that you? You know. I've said that, uh, you know, thank heavens for the patience and the acceptance in Al-Anon rooms because for a long time I cried a lot. And, And nobody ever said, come back when you've gotten through this stage of it, you know. We'll talk to you then. They just kept saying, keep coming back. You know. uh, in the beginning, I was very leery of the people in Al-Anon. I liked what they had to say. I liked the expression on their faces, but I didn't want them to touch me. I think I was afraid that I would crack and fall apart. I felt so fragile and so vulnerable. I look for hugs today. Um, I ask for them if I need them. I learned to do that in these rooms because you all accepted and loved me when I couldn't love myself. Now part of this plan that I believe that God had for me, you know, with coming to complete surrender and accepting my powerlessness and starting to to put the steps and practice in, into my life, you know. I, I think really when I came in that third time that even though I was at a point of accepting that powerlessness, I do believe I came in on the second step. I knew there was something terribly wrong with my thinking. You know, my definition of sanity is emotional healthiness and I was anything but emotionally healthy. You know. so, so learning to use the steps and, and as time went on and they became more and more involved in my life. You know, I, I heard someone at Chestertown two weeks ago say that you know, he didn't join Al-Anon. Al-Anon became part of him. And, and I think that's what happened with the steps. And, and as part of this plan that God had, I realized I was looking at someone else in my life, someone else that I love very much. And they, too, were changing in front of my eyes. And this was my daughter, my youngest child. And she did indeed have a very serious problem with drugs and alcohol. And I didn't know any more what to do about that than I had known what to do with her father. And even though I was in Al-Anon and even though I was making a lot of meetings, I did all the same things all over again that I had done with her father. I tried reminding her, you know, how she should behave. I nagged her. I screamed and I yelled. 
I remember one time that I told her she was a disgrace to the family, that she had two brothers who were in college, and I was taking part-time college classes, and she was screwing up her life and causing me problems. Not much love or acceptance in those words. I know today, because I've had to make amends to myself, that all that anger came out of all the fear I felt for her. Because I knew where the disease had taken her father, and I did not want her to go that path. I was attending a retreat that a lot of Al-Anon people were at, and I was in tremendous pain about my daughter. I did not know where she was. She'd been out on the streets for months, and I was very afraid, and I had not been able to let go. And I went into the chapel there, and I was doing a lot of what I called praying, but basically I was telling God what I wanted him to do about this situation. And all of a sudden, I was conscious that there was this tapping sound. And it, it sort of distracted me from my plea, you know. And I looked, and I could see through the stained glass window that there was a bird tapping on this window. I don't consider it a coincidence. I consider it a God incident that the window he was tapping on in that chapel, the stained glass window, had a picture of a man kneeling and the words underneath of it were, now I give up. I believe that was a message from my higher power. And that day in that chapel in Charles Merlin, I put my daughter where she belonged, in God's hands. I knew that in God she had a perfect parent. I knew that he loved her and accepted her for who and what she was. And he would be able to do the right things for her. And that was the safest and best place I could possibly put her. And from the moment I did that, not that I never experienced pain again about it, but it got a whole lot easier to deal with. During my, my children's growing up in our family, and I know today that I was doing the best that I could do under the circumstances, but I know that in both word and deed, I caused damage to my children. Every bit as much damage as their father's damage done with the drinking. And it's real important I say this to you. Again, in Chestertown recently, I heard a recovering alcoholic tell his story. And he mentioned about the promises that he had made to his family during his drinking days and how he had broken those promises. And it was obvious he was real moved. And he said, I can tell you how this alcoholic felt about that. And he said it was terrible. And since he was still practicing how he handled the pain of his broken promises was to go and drink again 
and numb that pain. And I thought of my children's father and his broken promises and the pain that I know he felt then and still feels because he is not in recovery. And he has lost something very precious. I know that I did not make so many promises, but I didn't tell the truth to my children. They would hear things sometimes late at night, and the next day they would ask me about those things. Are you all right, Mom? Is everything okay? And I would say, I'm just fine. Everything's okay. And so I gave my children a parent who, as much as he loved them, could not keep his promises, and a mother who didn't tell the truth and basically said, let's not talk about it. I have made amends to my children for that. Some of it... I have not been able to make amends so much in what I say, but in how I live life today. One of the gifts of this program is that my oldest son one time said to me very quietly and very gently that he understood how his dad behaved and why he behaved that way. But he said, I didn't understand you at all, Mom. And he said, sometimes I would come home from school and I would really want to tell you about something that happened that day. I'd want to share a, a, a good accomplishment with you. And he said, you simply weren't there. And I took that very literally and I said, I wasn't working. Of course I was there. And he said, no, you weren't, Mom. You didn't hear me. You didn't hear what I was telling you. And that was real painful, but it was very true. And because of this program, I could say to him, you are right. I did not hear you, but I can hear you today. I can't go back and change yesterday, but I can hear you today. And I will be here for you to the best of my ability and with God's help. And so he's been able to talk about some painful things that he remembers from those days and some things that are happening in his life today. And that kind of trust is a direct result of the gifts of this program. That is the family situation expand to improve as we put these principles in our life. I was very touched when I realized that the conference theme was what it was. You know, the principles before the personalities. That's been a major part of my recovery in, in a lot of odd ways. When I first came into Al-Anon, seriously, you know, I came in with a lot of... Ju- I, I had some health problems. And as a result of that, I had to make a decision whether I was going to have a heart catheterization and, you know, they don't make that easy for you. They have you sign all those papers about what's going to happen if you don't make it through, you know. And uh, 
because of this program, I have the courage to take risk. And so I signed the papers, and I had the catheterization. Now, I thought it was an absolutely marvelous experience. I got to see my heart. I saw my heart beating. I was awed by that, absolutely awed. But I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, I saw my own heart beat, you know, last October. But because of the grace of God and coming into rooms like this, I've seen your heart beat. I've seen it in your eyes when you smiled at me. I have heard it in the words when you told me that you cared and that this too would pass and I'd be all right no matter what was going on. I have felt it in the love in these rooms. I can always feel the love in these rooms. There aren't words for that kind of gratitude, you know. An important part of, of what happened as a result of my being in Al-Anon and, and using the steps and getting to know myself better through the fourth and the fifth steps and going on and asking God for help was that I was able to clean out a lot of things that I'd been carrying around with me and I could leave myself open to what was happening. And that made an immeasurable difference in my relationship to my daughter who was still active in her disease. She was no longer living with me. We would see each other for dinner, you know, and I learned to be quiet and not tell her what she should be doing and just let her tell me whatever it was she was ready to let me know about. And I've shared this story before, but I, it's real important to me about this thing about principles before personalities. I picked my daughter up one night, and she was dressed in an outfit um, that left a whole lot to be desired as far as I was concerned. And she had a hairdo that kind of matched the outfit and some very strange-looking shoes. And I thought, ye gods, we're going out for dinner. People are going to be looking at her like this. And a meeting I go to on Friday night that's open to anybody in Al-Anon, but it's primarily geared for parents of alcoholics, has kind of an unofficial slogan, and it's called, sit down, shut up, and smile. So I sat down, I shut up, and I smiled, and I didn't say anything about what she was wearing. And I remembered, you know, how important is it? And on our way to dinner, I, I told her that I wanted to stop and visit her grandmother, who had been in a nursing home for a number of years. My mother had had a series of strokes and at this point was paralyzed. She had not spoken for a long, long time. She could move her eyebrows and the fingers on her right hand. 
And my daughter said that she would stop with me. And she has a real gift with older people. She was very close to my mother. And she just talked to my mother very easily, very warmly. She held that right hand in hers. And I stood there and I watched and I could see that my mother's eyes were smiling. And I could watch the fingers on my mother's right hand touching my daughter's. And indeed, you can believe that I thank God for that moment. Because if I had said to her, I don't like what you're wearing tonight, change. I know my daughter wouldn't have come with me. I would not have gotten to see that little miracle with my mother. My mother would not have gotten to experience it. And it wouldn't be a memory in my daughter's heart today. When my mother died, um, my daughter was very helpful to me, very loving. She did as much for me as she could do, given the fact that she was still in an addiction. She came to see me shortly after the funeral, and we sat in my living room and talked. And we talked about alcoholism. And I told her that I was really sorry that her father had never, because we could talk about his disease. I was sorry that he had never accepted the fact that he had a disease. And I said, you know, it is a disease. It's not a disgrace. And she said, what did you say? And I said, your father has a disease. She said, no, 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 the other part. I said, it's not a disgrace. It's not a disgrace to be an alcoholic any more than it is to have diabetes or, or heart disease or anything else. Something about those words I could tell registered with my daughter. And she said to me, what are you going to do this evening? This was a Saturday night. And I said, I'm going to an open AA meeting. Now, she's known for years that I've been in Al-Anon. And she said, why are you going to an AA meeting? You don't have a problem with alcohol. And I said, I go because I see hope there. And I see recovery there. And it helps me. It helps me accept the disease concept. It helps me to believe that people can change. She said, can I come with you? Now, you know I didn't say no. <laughs> and we went to that meeting. And I know that she listened very hard. Some friends of mine were there. They invited us out for ice cream. And my daughter said, no, thank you. And as we were walking out to the car, I had also mentioned to her that quite frequently on Saturday nights, I went to two AA meetings. And she said, you know, let's go to that other meeting. And I said, yes, fine. So we went to that second AA meeting. And that night, by the grace of God, I got to hear my daughter say that she'd been sober for a day. And she wanted more. In September of this year, my daughter will be five years clean and sober, God willing. 
Her addiction took her places that I never wanted ever, ever to see my daughter go. And it caused things to happen in her life that left scars on both of us. Her recovery has been a joy to watch. I have to be honest, she doesn't work her program the way I'd like to work it. (laughs) But she's working it. And one day at a time, she's clean and sober. She's in college now. She's going to graduate probably in December, maybe a little bit later because she's also working a full-time job right now. She's getting A's and B's. She's writing short stories and poetry. She's just blossoming, absolutely blossoming. The fact that I got to see the beginning of that was a real gift. And nothing that ever happens in her life or my life will take away my gratitude to God for just being a little part of that. And I know that if it were not for the program, she may indeed have gotten into recovery. That may have been God's plan for her, but I don't believe I would have been a part of it because the person who yelled and nagged and screamed at her and told her she was a disgrace was not likely the one that she was going to reach out to and say, can I go to a meeting with? That was, I believe, principles before personalities. Another instance of that And every time I see Lola, I think about this. I have a son who is hearing impaired. He was born with perfect hearing. During his teenage years, when things were extremely difficult in my family, he did not receive medical care that he needed. I do not know whether it would have made any difference or not. I know that the guilt I felt about his loss of hearing didn't change for me. I know that the day that I watched him being wheeled out of an operating room and into recovery after the first operation on his ear and I saw the pain that he was in, I thought my heart would break and I wanted to kill his father. I was very angry. I was past anger. I was into rage. My son has had three operations on his ear. He wears a hearing aid. He has been told that his loss is progressive and that he is going deaf. We can talk about that today. He's learned something about acceptance. And I have, by the grace of God and the steps of this program, been able to let loose of the guilt that I felt about that for him. I know that at times it's still very difficult for him. He's a young, good-looking man. It's hard for him to feel that this is changing and he can't do anything about it. That he came to see the specialist who's operated on him and he'd been having some problems and he went with some hopes that maybe one more operation might make a difference. 
and the specialist had to tell him very gently that it wasn't going to make any difference. There was going to be no change except for the worst in this. And he told me about this later, not at the time. The original plan was he was going to call me when he left the doctor's office and let me know what happened, and I didn't hear from him. And so I knew it probably was not good what he heard serenity prayer. And he said, Mom, I left, and he said, I was so angry that they couldn't fix it, and I was afraid, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, and I couldn't talk to you about it. And he said, I'm driving down 95, and I'm driving too fast. And he said, there was this truck in front of me, and the truck wasn't getting out of my way. And he said, I was just getting more and more frustrated and more and more angry. And he said, all of a sudden, I found myself looking at this bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said, this too shall pass. And he said, I think I've heard that before. And he said, then I was aware that there was another bumper sticker, and it said, clean and sober. And he said, I thought, that's somebody in the program. I think that was God. My son said he finally pulled around the truck, not because he was in a hurry to pass him, but because he wanted to smile at the person who had had that bumper sticker on. And he said when he did, he tooted his horn and he kind of stuck his thumb up, you know, like a thumbs up sort of thing. And the guy who was driving the truck did it back and waved at him. And Andrew said, I felt a lot better then. And he said, I guess he thought I was in the program, Mom. And I said, you were. You were feeling the love that exists. So you never know when you're doing service or you're carrying the message, that bumper sticker may be seen by somebody who really needs to see it. I don't know who that man driving that truck was, but I owe him a debt of gratitude because he helped my son that day. You all have made such a difference in my life. I love being in recovery. I enjoy life today. I do things I never thought I'd do. I've gone whitewater rafting. I was the oldest person on the raft, and I know I had the very best time. I took my son as a graduation present from college on a rafting trip. I introduced him to it. I'm not afraid anymore of people. I've even managed to get to Europe and walk in a city where I did not speak the language. And I smiled at people and they smiled back and it was okay. I was safe and I was comfortable there. You know, that would not have happened without the gift of this program. That would not happen without the grace of my God. That relationship that I have today with the God of my understanding is the single most important relationship I have in my life. You know, I think when I started talking this morning, I told you that I I felt safe with my dad. When my hand was in my father's hand, I felt safe and I felt comforted. Because of how many times you have reached out and held my hand, and walk with me and talk with me in places that I couldn't go by myself. I have my hand in God's today. And I know that no matter what happens, it will be all right. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to feel pain again. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to be afraid again. 
it does mean I will be all right. People like you and rooms like this gave me back what I had as a little girl with my dad. I don't know how you say thank you for that, but I'm trying this morning, and thank you. if I can stop get my nose from waking and dry my eyes so I can read. Um, on behalf of the Maryland State Convention Committee, friend, we'd like to offer you this gift as a token of our appreciation and thanks. In closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you liked and leave the rest. The things you heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Keep them within the walls of this room, the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. My understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time. 